we spoke to someone working for Asta who used to work for Asta mm -hmm. and what I think she said was this was basically a PR exercise because the margins that they make on those veg boxes are just not enough. I mean, right. case in point being little selling their box for um, £1.50 mm -hmm. uh, and they clearly know that as a, as a business, a commercial decision that is never going to work or that is never going to uh, um, you know, uh, contribute to their bottom line. However, what it really does, it creates a lot of press and PR in the market about, you know, their contribution towards food waste. And yeah. that's the angle yeah. that they go for. This is the Food is Wasted podcast. My name is Chris King. And you just heard Deepak from Oddbox talking about how supermarkets may not be as committed as they say they are to taking wonky fruit and veg from their suppliers and making it available to us, their customers. Oddbox is a London-based box scheme that works directly with farmers and growers to take their wonky and surplus produce, so food that might otherwise have gone to waste, then delivering it straight to their members' doors at a price that's fair for both the farmer and their members. I spoke to Emily and Deepak, the two founders of the company, about how they started off, how they sourced their produce, what they've witnessed along the way, and what they feel needs to be done to make a more sustainable and egalitarian food system. As we uh, discuss, it's evident that things need to change and that despite lots of noise being created by supermarkets around the issue of food waste, they unfortunately are unlikely to be leading that change. It was a great chat and they give some really valuable insights as to why there is a vital need for the work that they're doing and that of others uh, motivated not by the bottom line, but by the desire to create positive change in a sustainable manner and through a long-term approach to providing people access to seasonal, nutritious and affordable food. This episode is also available as a video which you can watch via the Food is Wasted YouTube channel. Go to foodiswasted.com forward slash YouTube and you'll be directed to the YouTube channel uh, where you'll see this video and all the other videos that have been produced so far. If you want to learn more about Oddbox, you can visit their website at oddbox.co.uk and show notes for this episode, uh, so listing all the different organizations and uh, reports and anything else that we might discuss during the conversation can be accessed by going to foodiswasted.com forward slash podcasts and navigating to the page for this particular podcast. And as always, please be sure to share this podcast and video uh, with anyone that you feel might be interested Enjoy. So I'm uh, Emily and that's Deepak and we're co-founders of Oddbox. So Oddbox is London's first wonky veg subscription scheme. And so uh, we basically source misshapen and surplus fruits and vegetables directly from farms and bring them uh, straight to consumers uh, through a veg box or a fruit box for offices. And uh, because we're able to source some of the produce for cheaper, then we're able to sell our boxes for cheaper. So it's kind of a win-win situation. The uh, growers are able to sell produce that they were not able to sell in the past. And in addition, consumers are able to get perfectly delicious produce for cheaper than uh, what they would pay for a normal veg box. Yeah, so my name is uh, Deepak and I'm the co-founder of Oddbox along with Emily. Um, and uh, yeah, we started Oddbox two years ago uh, when we realized that there was a problem around the um, the aesthetic quality of how, how nature grows uh, its fruit and veg uh, and the fact that you know those the the, the way nature grows uh, is not what we find in uh, supermarkets uh, and so we saw 
a, a pain point that was you know the whole idea behind what was happening uh, with the produce that was growing naturally on the farms uh, that would potentially go to waste uh, and we thought that that would be a great concept to bring those naturally growing produce but you know not exactly uh, you know the, the different size shape colors that don't you don't usually find in supermarkets to people's homes directly and what kind of research did you do ahead of time to kind of find out if there was actually any sort of uh, desire to engage with such a thing yeah so so basically when we started so initially we uh, did quite a lot of uh, kind of research looking at uh, what was happening in the industry and the food supply chain, why there was so much waste. And that's when we kind of realized that at initially it was kind of EU standards in terms of uh, the EU trying to make sure that uh, produce were good quality which uh, implemented kind of criteria in terms of size, shape, color. But these regulations got lifted several years ago, but supermarkets kind of continued using similar regulations, saying that consumers, in fact, demanded this level of uh, kind of cosmetic perfection. Uh, so that's... And then uh, what we did is that, uh, so I went to uh, uh, several pack houses, uh, so a pack house of a huge kind of uh, supermarket supplier, mm -hmm. and uh, there they took me through the whole process. Uh, and in fact, that was an organic pack house where you would expect that because it's organic, there's a lot less waste, mm -hmm. but it's not the case at all. So it was uh, a carrot assembly line, and you would see all of the carrots coming uh, through the line and there were different checks. So they had like uh, photo checks, camera checks to check the internal damage. Then uh, there would be kind of some manual checks. Then there would be checks in terms of size, in terms of uh, kind of any cuts and anything which didn't fit the criteria would fall into a skip. And so lots of perfectly good carrots, which had small cuts, which were shorter, which were fatter, would end up in the skip along with uh, things which were not good quality and which uh, had got kind of uh, damage or mold. So uh, everything, uh, irrespective of whether it was good to eat or not, ended up in the skip and would go for anim animal feed or would just go to landfill. And, um, and what they said is that it, uh, it was around 30% of all their production which would end up in the skip uh, when, uh, in fact, I could see that the majority of that, uh, I would be very happy to eat it. Yeah. And then uh, Deepak then went to uh, visit an apple uh, grower. So this was an apple orchard in, in Kent. Uh, and again, they were talking to me about, you know, again, 20 to 40% of the apples that were too small. Uh, they had frost damage or because of early, early, you know, sometimes hail there were hail damage on the, on the apples, mm -hmm. and a huge proportion of these apples they were unable to sell uh, because of the, and, and I could, we could see whole orchards or whole fields being affected by this. And then when and in spring and when come come harvest season, none of them could be given to a supermarket. So the, so that's when when we kind of visited the apple orchard and we started uh, discussing, you know, can we can we what can we do with it? And that's when we kind of thought. There is no avenue for them apart from the traditional 
food processing industries like juicing. Some of some of the more savvy farmers are able to sell it sell it uh, for for juicing. Okay. Um, but a lot of the small farms and independent farms, they don't really know there are different avenues available. So they just just right. okay. just yeah. let the whole fruit fall to the ground mm-hmm. um, and become part of the kind of you know the, the, the compost or it goes to a landfill or it gets sent to an animal uh, animal feed. And and in addition. Uh, the juicing industry or the processing industry will not pay uh, sometimes a price which makes it worth harvesting or kind of segregating this produce. So, uh, they, yeah, they can find avenues to sell the produce, but then if it costs them more to harvest, to pack and to ship uh, than what they will be paid, then for them uh, it's not even worth kind of picking it. So they just sometimes leave it in the field or just send it for animal feed. And there is a huge um, technology cost involved of harvesting them in a month or two and then storing them in cold store or CO, control atmosphere, CA, control atmosphere stores from September to almost March or April. Uh, And therefore, just for them to store those apples throughout the year, throughout the season, it's quite a huge cost for a, for a farmer to undertake when the margins are quite thin. So they have to be really careful about what they harvest, what they can store, and what they can sell, and have a clear idea um, of that possible so that they can forecast uh, uh, their economics. And and then, so what? Uh, basically what we did is that we kind of started a small trial just in our area. So we printed a few flyers, distributed that at a local market, and then distributed in households just uh, in a few streets. Uh, also got some friends to kind of uh, sign up. And so we got 20 customers. At that time, we had found one supplier, two suppliers. So one based in New Covent Garden Market, so the wholesale market, and another one based in Borough Market. And both of them were both kind of suppl- growers and wholesalers. So they had access to their own produce as well as access to the wholesale market. And so they kind of helped us find produce which uh, either were kind of wonky, so what we mean is too big, too small, or have skin markings, or were surplus. And so uh, we did a six-week trial working with them, planning what would be in the box for the next six weeks, and um, then packing the boxes ourselves. At, so we would go to the, uh, the markets at uh, four or five in the morning, because that's just before they close. Uh, because obviously they're open only between uh, 11 and 5 in the morning, then make the boxes and then deliver ourselves uh, to kind of uh, these 20 uh, families who were happy to trial it. And we realized that uh, basically people didn't find that uh, the produce were uh, any different. In fact, lots of people told us, but uh, it actually didn't really look wonky. Mm. So, and that's when we thought uh, if, if we've proven it with 20 people. If 20 people are happy to uh, get this produce, then there's definitely some demand and other people would be happy to uh, eat kind of wonky or surplus produce. And so how many subscribers do you have now? To your so now we've got uh, uh, 
over 1,600 homes, um, so in uh, mostly South London, where we started and we've just expanded to West London. And we do also fruit boxes for offices. And uh, uh, so we've, we've got 85 offices to whom we deliver fruit boxes on Monday or Wednesday. Okay, so there's clearly a, a demand for it. So despite what supermarkets might say in terms of people's reluctance to, to kind of accept such um, yes and supermarket yes supermarkets also did some tests so uh, I don't uh, I think it was asda uh, which did a test and ask did a survey and they realized that over 50 percent of people would be happy to buy wonky produce if it was cheaper than normal produce so there was kind of a price element that uh, people still don't understand that it's the same quality produce and therefore there's no reason to pay a discount for this produce. Yeah. But people are obviously happy to buy this produce. And Asda launched a, a wonky veg box three years ago and they had lots of people buying it. Um, now a lot of supermarkets have wonky ranges, which earlier were their value packs. Yeah. So they've kind of rebranded their value pack to say uh, wonky range when it's kind of, uh, it's it's the same. They already always add kind of slightly uh, smaller or bigger apples or bigger produce or different size and shapes, uh, which will kind of have their value pack. So you don't think the supermarkets kind of exploring, reintroducing um, wonky veg, their, their kind of deviation from what they're normally providing, you think you're saying it's, it's very little. It's actually aesthetically speaking, um, it's there's very little variation between their class one and then what they're sticking in these uh, wonky fruit and veg. They're, so yeah. they're, they're not really kind of truly embracing the wonky fruit and veg, kind of what's out there, what's available. and Not really, because I think this is, I think we, we spoke to someone working for Asta, who used to work for Asta, mm -hmm. and what I think she said was this was basically a PR exercise because the margins that they make on those veg boxes are just not enough. I mean, case in point being little, selling their box for... Um, £1.50 mm -hmm. uh, and they clearly know that as a, as a business a commercial decision that is never going to work or that is never going to uh, um, you know, uh, contribute to their bottom line however what it really does it creates a lot of press and PR in the market about you know their contribution towards food waste and yeah. that's the angle yeah. that they go for plus lots of footfall so uh, for them they don't sell only fruit and veg so what's important for them is to uh, get entice the customers into the shop because they know that uh, customers will not only buy the fruit and veg box, they will also buy other things. So they are kind of able to uh, grow by having things like that, which are um, where they lose money, but they will make money on other items. Okay. So so in, in your uh, promotional video for your, your recent um, Cedar campaign, where you're trying to um, get further investment, you mentioned that you want to kind of normalize um, yeah, you want to normalize wonky fruit and veg. So how do you, how do you see that happening? Um, you know, how do you, how do you see Oddbox contributing to that and putting pressure on supermarkets to, instead of it just being a PR stunt, actually kind of dropping those aesthetic standards, those cosmetic standards, and really kind of uh, taking all the produce or you know, no matter what it looks like and, and what shape it is, 
of uh, farmers? Yeah, I think a couple of things there is one is we realized that supermarkets essentially are a market. So it's, what it means is demand and supply, matching demand and supply. And what that also means is that they do it because the consumer, they seem to think that the consumer wants it. So there's a big part of it is changing consumer mindsets about what they think is, um, shall we say, not normal. And uh, and this quest for per- perfection that we've always seem to put on ourselves. So I think from our perspective, we would want to educate consumers, educate children especially about the fact that it is nature and that's how nature grows. We can't put them in a in a mold or a plastic bag and say it fits perfectly. You know, it's almost we were almost retrofitting something that grows in nature into a man-made thing. So, I think education is a big part of it, and that's what we will we'll try and drive that education more and more as as a company. Uh, and second, by the very virtue of the fact that we are successful as a company. Uh, and we we're able to work with more and more farms, helping them reduce their um, almost being timely, um, you know, rescue of these fruit and veg, obviously, because there's a big time element involved in fresh produce. I think supermarkets will start realizing that there is actually these guys are actually selling the, the, the produce and by virtue of that, why should we not take more of that produce and make it, you know, in our, you know, sell it in our kind of stores. Now, the third thing as well is, and Going back to a point I was making earlier, a lot of this wastage happens because of practical um, efficiencies that have been put in place, like packaging uh, or mm. things go on crates and, and on the line and things like that. So, in fact, there is no space for things out of the norm. Uh, and I think by virtue of reducing black packaging and selling things more in a natural form, like you see in local farmers' markets, for example, I think supermarkets will drive that or, you know, overall there'll be industry-wide movement towards let's take produce as it comes, but let's avoid all these inefficiencies we put in place. Mm -hmm. It might be inefficient in the shorter run, but in the longer run, it's good for the environment. Yeah, and see, for example, cucumbers. So uh, they are all straight in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. And that's because uh, in terms of uh, clean they are all clean wrapped and the clean wrapping machine only is able to take straight cucumbers. So so uh, that just kind of uh, the fact that the machine has a specific requirement in terms of kind of uh, the fact that it needs to be straight and it needs to be a specific size, which drives the fact that then the produce that they take uh, has to be straight. Mm-hmm. But then if they don't put a uh, clean film on the cucumbers, then they can take any shape cucumbers. So what we get in our boxes are all the curly cucumbers. Uh, And one advantage that we have as well being kind of a direct-to-consumer business is the fact that we can talk directly to our customers um, very easily. And so every week we put a letter in our box which explains where the produce comes from, why it's in the box, What's what's been happening? So uh, whether it's kind of a size issue, whether it's a surplus issue, plus uh, we can uh, explain. Uh, for example, uh, right now there's uh, issues in terms of uh, with the weather, uh, it's impacting crops a lot. So there are things that we can uh, we can give insight to our consumers about what's happening in the fresh produce industry and what are some of uh, the the issues that uh, growers are facing. So we're able to provide that education that supermarkets are not necessarily able to to provide. And in terms of um, 
the benefit of a farmer engaging with Oddbox? So obviously you've mentioned that uh, those farmers that um, for whom it is economically viable to um, send it off for juicing or whatever to harvest it and then and then transport it and send it for juicing, um, they're probably already catered for and and they're doing okay. But um, what what are you offering farmers? Are you offering something um, or even yeah competing with that competing with those secondary markets? Um, which you have to, what, what price are you giving? How are you kind of, um, what, what's the pricing model for accessing the wonky fruit and veg directly from farmers? Yeah, so we're kind of positioning ourselves between what the supermarkets can offer and what the uh, juicing industry or what animal feed uh, can offer. So, uh, so because it's produce that then we're able to sell to our uh, uh, consumers in their kind of uh, uh, normal form, so not being processed, uh, then we're able to pay a price which uh, is higher and also is fair in terms of giving the producers a return. So for us, it's really important that we continuously talk to our growers and make sure that uh, we're, we're not kind of paying them a price which don't even, co- even cover their cost. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, uh, in our crowdfunding video, uh, you would have seen an asparagus grower. And so uh, earlier he would sell only 60% of his crop and he would leave the rest on the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've, we worked with them during the asparagus season and took, so we couldn't take all of the rest of his crop mm-hmm. considering our volume are still small, but we took a portion of what he wouldn't harvest. So he would harvest this specifically for us. There's clearly a huge amount of opportunity to access wonky fruit and veg, not just on the farm, the farms themselves, but the pack houses. Are the pack houses separate or are they... Is that a separate so, part of the chain, yes. or is so, part of the chain? Yeah. So, so nowadays, uh, most of the growers will have their own pack house. So, uh, smaller growers will not have their own and send their produce to a pack house, which then will kind of uh, pack for uh, for several growers, and then that's sent to the supermarkets. The same pack house will could supply multiple supermarkets yeah. as well. So, it's almost this middleman. Which has the, the the grading facilities, the storage facilities, uh, as well as the dispatch facilities uh, that require. Yeah. Plus, farmers yeah. Don't have. Plus, also kind of uh, in terms of fruit, the UK was, is only self-sufficient for 11% of its fruit mm-hmm. because there's basically uh, not that many fruits grown in the UK. So there's a lot which is imported, but still, despite being sometimes pre-graded where it's grown, it still comes here and there's still some grading being done here. So uh, we also get produce which kind of are graded here. And for example, some uh, clementines which have small skin markings. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, also, we get a lot of things which are surplus. So there's always some fluctuation between the supply and the demand. So something would have already come in. But then, uh, because there was, uh, it was pre-ordered, but then it's uh, a cold week and people want uh, less of a certain produce. So it kind of stays uh, with the pack house and they don't have a way to uh, use it. So there's a lot of kind of uh, uh, produce which becomes surplus, which we also get. And that's, uh, 
that stuff that the supermarket isn't really kind of um, taking responsibility for when they declare that they have 0.1% um, waste that they're producing, then yes. that's clearly omitting. It's, yes, because... It's almost mm, saying yeah. you have waste in your kind of four walls, you have probably 0.1%, but are we are they taking responsibility for the whole supply chain is, is, a, is a good question to ask. And, you know, is that being tracked? Um, because supermarkets now and also involve uh, or communicate with other charities, for example, where they get rid of a lot of their uh, surplus. So in a way, they must, the net effect of that might be 0.1%, but there's an overall impact on the supply chain that uh, is, is that is a true cost. Mm, yeah. Yes, because it's not integrated. So uh, for them, they are not responsible for the uh, whole production or the uh, all kind of supply of a, whether it's a grower or a pack house, uh, the, then kind of the way the market works is that uh, there's no kind of assurance of placing a specific orders. And that also works for the growers because they don't always know what they will be able to produce. So it's difficult to fix kind of uh, the supply and the demand a long time in advance. So it's very much on a week by week and day by day basis in terms of what they need um, to replenish their stock. And similarly, what the growers have uh, produced and can supply. And so one of the advantages we offer as a subscription business is that almost with a certain degree of accuracy, we can say we need, we need X quantities as we move forward because our numbers don't change drastically. And as we become more and more mature as an organization, we are then able to say, right, okay, we know there's going to be a dip in August because of holidays, there's going to be a dip in December again, but there's again going to be spikes in September and January. And for that predictability, as we become as a mature organization, we'll be able to forecast more accurately, which is quite hard to do as a market because you are expecting footfall and yes, supermarkets are quite advanced organizations, however, there's only so much you can predict in terms of the weather and things like that. And, and for us, the good thing is that, uh, for example, if it's a, a cold week and then the, uh, there's less salads being uh, kind of taken in the supermarket, for us, we can still put salads in our boxes and help kind of the growers who have an excess salads. Mm -hmm. So, because we are less driven by the demand, because we can f fix what's in the box. It's not based on what consumers want. So there's an element of flexibility where people can specify if they don't want something. But apart from that, it's kind of us deciding what goes in the box based on what's in season. Okay, yeah. So you're educating people as well in terms of availability and seasonality, trying to kind of get people to embrace that once again and understand that there isn't this abundance all year round yes. or, or yes. you know it has a consequence because it has to be sourced elsewhere and yes. plus also in terms of kind of quality and taste uh, it's always better when you eat things seasonally so uh, strawberries in december will definitely not have the same taste as strawberries in the summer so we kind of uh, don't put strawberries in our boxes in the winter. So in the winter, it's a bit more of a boring box mm -hmm. with uh, uh, apple, pears, and citrus than in the summer months. Yeah, and lots of root vegetables. But then, yes. but then you know, it, it, that's 
it's necessary. It forces people to kind of educate themselves in right. terms of how to how to use that and how right. to exactly. how to cook for that. So exactly. it's all it's all to everybody's benefit. And yeah. and if it takes you know if it takes that for people to start engaging with the wider issue of climate change and things like that, then you know it's a small price to pay that Absolutely. that we go back to the way things were in terms of a more sustainable kind of food culture than one that just expects um, fruit all year round and, and veg all year round and, and that convenience factor and stuff like that, you know, so, yeah. And and how have the farmers been, uh, how receptive have they been to you approaching them and, and um, taking their wonky fruit and veg from I think initially there was a bit of a resistance, uh, mainly because of the volumes that we were asking. We were quite small as an organization and there was a certain amount of um, economics and labor that goes into play in terms of them harvesting it, packing it for us and so on in, in, in crates and so on. But as we've become bigger and bigger and we're able to command more quantities of, of um, fresh produce, then they're much more receptive now. Uh, before we would call them and they would say, you know, we won't work with you unless you reach a certain kind of quantity or volume. And now we have farmers contacting mm -hmm. us and saying, yeah. right, can you can you help me, you know, sell some of these because I'm not able to sell that for whatever you know for whatever reason or because it's surplus. Mm -hmm. So I think the the dynamic is shifting more and more where farmers are actually seeing mm -hmm. these are guys not just there just to you know take a few here and there for local market. This is consistent. You know, in terms of the demand, it's, it's consistent demand. We're able to forecast it quite accurately. So, the dynamic has shifted now. Yeah. Uh, plus, plus, there's be, there's a bit of a stigma in terms of uh, suppliers accepting that they are creating waste. So when we would call them and say, uh, so uh, how much do you kind of produce of wonky? How much do you waste? So uh, sometimes we've had suppliers saying, no, no, I don't have any waste. So uh, everything I produce, uh, I'm able to sell, which uh, definitely. Uh, didn't happen anywhere because it's not feasible. There will always be an amount of waste, uh, however efficient they can be. But then it's not something that they necessarily wanted to acknowledge to a third party. And now that, that the issue of uh, food waste is kind of a lot more well known and uh, there's a lot kind of more discussion and communication about it, uh, the whole sector is also more open to kind of accept, acknowledging that, yes, there's waste. So do you think that reluctance to kind of acknowledge it was out of embarrassment or, or, or out of just that pervasiveness of this perception that that had no value, that, you know, that the only, the only produce that had value was the aesthetically perfect? I, yes, I think it's a bit of both. So I think it was also kind of because we were small, they didn't see much kind of interest or potential to, to work with us. Now that we've grown um, and now that there's a lot more talk about wonky veg and wonky veg ranges uh, in the press and that the supermarkets are also kind of um, doing wonky veg, veg, veg ranges, they see that there's potential and there's customer demand for wonky produce. There's also a, I think, a fear that we don't want to expose ourselves to say we generate yeah. so much waste. And sometimes that can have a kind of a, 
larger ramification in the sense that if supermarkets are tracking the they want if they have to report on waste and they are under pressure to report on food waste that they generate not just in their in their kind of market kind of four walls but also their suppliers then there is a bit of an afraid of a you know the fear of kind of kickback from the supermarkets who said you guys said you had only just 0.1 percent of waste, but now you're saying there's there's more than that, and you're selling it to let's say odd box. So there could there's a fear of reprisal there uh, that probably prevents some uh, companies to kind of accept that they have some amount of waste. But you're hopeful though that there is a, a change in, yeah. in perception and, and an acknowledgement that something 100%. has to be done. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Um, there was a, I think there's awareness as well. I think people just didn't realize that beyond the traditional food processing industries and juicing industries, there was an avenue. Now they know there is an avenue. Uh, and now they see that, okay, there is a market uh, available that people are willing to buy that. Um, and therefore, they, they see that as an economic uh, benefit as well to them. So uh, certainly something that... Yeah. Yeah. Plus, yes, now we work with over 30 different suppliers and the fresh produce kind of industry is kind of people know each other in the industry. So uh, there's lots of, uh, kind of some of our suppliers who've referred us to other suppliers who they work with. So it's been kind of a bit of word of mouth, which has helped us. Yeah. And you you mentioned uh, in your video uh, on your Cedar campaign again that uh, online grocery sales are meant to go up by 54% by 2022. Um, and I was just wondering how much of that is captured or you know, how much currently and how much is it perceived to uh, be captured in the future by bricks and mortar supermarkets? Are they still dominating the online kind of uh, world of grocery shopping? Yes, I, I think they are still, but I think people like Ocado, Amazon Fresh, uh, kind of uh, farm drop, uh, are coming in. So there's lots of new players who uh, are coming in. But for example, Morrison now has a partnership with Amazon Fresh. So there's kind of partnership between traditional supermarkets and more innovative uh, solutions. But, uh, but definitely we see that uh, for us, uh, we see that we've got a place there. So the market is growing. People want more convenience. People want things delivered to their door. So we're not actually kind of, um, uh, cannibalizing uh, anybody's kind of market. There's a place for all of us to grow within that market. Right. And in terms of um, veg box, you know, the, the box schemes, um, what is the growth there? Is there a significant growth. Yes, there's been. Uh, we don't know exactly in terms of veg boxes, but the subscription business has grown uh, a thousand percent over the past few years. So there's now uh, subscription boxes for everything from um, kind of birch box, uh, jewelry, snacks. So uh, you can. Uh, Razors, so that you can get everything delivered through a subscription box. But even with the whole new segment created by recipe boxes, yeah. that's that's a whole new segment where they've just taken that, created that market, and they've grown so rapidly that people are 
changing again it's a mindset shift from going to a usual supermarket where you would get everything to a bit more of let me customize my groceries let me customize uh, you know my my you know videos let me customize let me let me go get it from multiple channels mm-hmm. uh, but it's more what's available and there's a wider choice available still with the added convenience uh, angle i mean that's always going to be key in the uk especially yeah, exactly. um, but supermarkets people are willing to think beyond supermarkets where it's still convenient to go to one store and purchase everything under one roof but if i could get everything delivered from different places and make it have more variety uh, why not so i think that that mindset is is shifting a lot but in terms of because yeah the whole kind of recipe box is still feeding that uh, desire for convenience and and lack of any sort of thought as to uh, what you're going to do, so which is kind of a contrast to what you're offering, which is going back to seasonality and sure. taking away that kind of uh, individual kind of bespoke um, consumption of food. It's about saying, here we go. This is what nature has provided us at this uh, on this month. Um, now go out and express yourselves, you know, with, and, and use that stuff. So it's kind of that contrast. So it's a competing kind of uh, approach to things, yes. but. Hopefully, you know, hopefully that'll rise, you know, that that kind of appreciation and, and especially with the heat wave that we've experienced, then hopefully people will wake up to the fact that things aren't right and we need to change our approach to things. And, and also the plastic, you know, yeah, is, plastic is feeding into in that. Yes, yeah, the plastic in, in the recipe boxes, uh, it's a lot of plastic packaging. What, uh, what we try to do is use as little plastic as we can. So uh, when we put uh, carrots, potatoes, apples, there's no reason to put them in plastic. So we just put them loose in the box. Well, again, I mean, the, but the recipe boxes are making inroads into that. I mean, Gusto yeah. just yesterday came up with their commitment by the end of 2019, they'll, they'll reduce 50% of their plastic. So they realized that there is yeah. that big, um, debate about plastic and they want to make sure that they, they reduce that as well so that there is an overall movement around let's reduce uh, plastic. But at the same time that's reactionary. It's yes. a re- reactionary response except instead of coming from a place of understanding and appreciation that things need to be changed wholesale, you know, that the system is flawed and we need to change it. This is just reacting, much like the, the supermarkets and the PR stands for quantity. Yes, yeah, so yeah, so reacting to what consumers are saying. Yeah, yeah. So, but but how, how are you guys going to get your message out beyond um, the, the letter that you're putting in the boxes and educating your, your membership base that currently exists? How do you intend to kind of get that message out there to more people? And, so there's a few steps in that. I mean, beyond the letter itself, I mean, there's content that we are looking to create to say, well, okay, this is where what happens behind the scenes on a farm, um, which we've got access to now in terms of, uh, you know, maybe taking pictures, speaking to the growers, etc. is one aspect of it. Uh, and also exposing them to things like what grows in season. And that's another aspect of it. Uh, the other thing is a lot of people, once they have produce, it's about educating them and saying, how do you store produce and I know this gets everybody talks about it but I think if we become the de facto kind of 
standard of this is you know this is how you prolong the life of produce um, again educating them with content and, and, and blogs that's one way of that's a second step in our kind of journeys evolution evolutionary step and the third step is going directly to schools and talking to children about it because I think uh, we, we think that children need to be educated about where does fresh fruit come from um, and it doesn't come from supermarkets for sure it comes from somewhere else and the, and where is that place what happens to the fruit there and educating from almost that grassroots level it's a much stronger education than telling someone who's been buying from supermarkets for the last 40 years and say and tell them telling them change your habits and do something else whereas if their kind of children come up yeah. and say did you know that yeah. this is where it comes from and this is what happens on a farm suddenly parents especially are bound to take more serious note of 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 that as a as a change saying oh that's in, it's interesting and maybe we should go back to uh, going back to the old ways of uh, buying mindfully is, is, is the uh, you know is, is what the way we put it and, and what some of our customers say is that uh, basically receiving the box every week uh, gives them the opportunity to uh, teach their children about where produce come from. So they will, some people were saying it's like Christmas every week for their children and they run to the door and then it's an opportunity to open the box together, show the different produce, explain about the produce, um, tell them where it's grown, uh, what uh, so how long it takes to grow it uh, why it's not it's there this week but not the next week so that, that gives the opportunity for parents to do that education around food mm -hmm. and, and what about uh, policy makers though because obviously that's kind of approaching that's a more long-term approach you know educating kids and and um, and yeah the, the grassroots kind of um, base but so that, that's kind of engaging with people who are already converted, they're already informed, they already care, they, um, they know um, what needs to be done and, and they're participating in it. But, you know, we're in this kind of tipping point, this critical... Okay, so, <laughs> so you're, doing, you're doing stuff within the schools and uh, you're engaging with your own membership base and stuff. Um, but that's and that's building up this kind of grassroots movement and, and awareness. But what about at uh, a policy maker level? Are you engaging with them at all? Because they obviously have the capacity to kind of change things in a, a very significant, meaningful way in a very short space of time. And, and some might argue that that's exactly what we need right now. Sure, I think it's a it's a it's a good idea. It's not something we've considered um, before because we don't we not we don't consider ourselves as activists, just as as as, as, as co-founders. But if if that's what it takes in terms of reaching out to the policymakers, whether it be in government or the industry, um, to work together as a working group to solve that problem, then that is something that we we look to do in the in the in the longer term. Um, uh, at this point in time, the way we're looking to tackle that is almost show show that the model works and show that there is a, an alternative uh, solution to that problem uh, before then, and, and, and almost show, okay, nationwide this works, problem works, uh, or the solution works, how do we then, let's solve that problem as an industry-wide kind of policy, uh, then that probably may, may be a much powerful statement to make from our side. Uh, is is what we think, um, but certainly something in the in, in the longer term uh, um, kind of future. 
something we, we could potentially explore. And what, what kind of policies would you like to see written up? You know, having been exposed to what you've, you've seen, you know, you, you see that the, the system has a huge amount of waste inbuilt in it and the supermarkets aren't really necessarily engaging with the issue. They're just kind of doing tokenistic gestures. Um, so what policy would you like to see to, to create a more kind of sustainable and egalitarian food system? So I, I think uh, uh, an element of some of the policies like the EU standards in terms of the size, shape, color of fruit and veg, that's been lifted, but then that actually hasn't changed what uh, has been happening in the industry. So supermarkets still kept their own standards, uh, despite the fact that legally they didn't need to uh, adhere to such standards. So there's an element of, uh, um, yes, policies can make some change, but also consumers are a powerful uh, kind of force for change as well. But in terms of uh, policies, I think right now, um, the supermarkets are not necessarily responsible enough for what's happening downstream in the industry and uh, they are saying, some supermarkets are saying that they are taking the whole crop, uh, but we don't really understand uh, how they can say that they are taking the whole crop when we work with some suppliers who supply the same supermarkets and uh, the suppliers are telling us, no, uh, we are not selling our whole crop. So um, uh, they have, they are all the, the whole industry has to work together to kind of find solutions and look at innovative ways of solving the problem of food waste. There will always be an element of, of variation between supply and demand. And the fact that we can't store fruit and veg makes it difficult to completely solve the issue of food waste. But there's definitely things that supermarkets can do to promote some, to promote local produce, to not respond necessarily to uh, always what consumers want. And, uh, and we, you can see it when you go to mainland Europe that uh, you don't see the same produce on the shelf all the time. So there's different ways uh, different countries approach the issue. And I would say um, it's one step at a time. I would almost there are supermarkets, and this happens in countries, especially in mainland European countries, France especially, where there is less of the produce that goes in packaging and plastic yeah. packaging. And although people might just think it's just plastic as a separate issue, it has a connected mm. issue with food waste. Yeah. Yes, it does prolong life in a way. Plastic prolongs life. If you know, cling, a cling film cucumber is, has a longer shelf life on you know, on a supermarket shelves. However, there is a damage impact on it from somewhere else. Yeah. And understanding what that impact is, it's not the whole idea of plastic in, uh, as a silo, uh, packaging as a silo, but understanding what is that causing the, the food waste? Is that causing waste somewhere else? Yeah. And truly understanding that whole picture, the bigger picture, rather than just looking things in, in silos. Yeah. Um, is, 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 and then that is a change that supermarkets will have to do to make sure, do we want to still sell those three courgettes in a pack 
do we want to sell those avocados in that plastic pack with yeah. the plastic, that cardboard tray? Uh, yes, it prevents supermarkets from arguing. Say yes, it prevents uh, food waste because it, you know, it, it pre- prevents them from pumps and and, and and drops and things like that. But are there better solutions out there? Yeah. And are we looking at a longer term picture rather than just yeah. today? Yes. Plus, plus I think that uh, uh, kind of uh, right now everything is about plastic, but then. Uh, it should be the responsibilities of uh, supermarkets to say we're using plastic because it reduces the overall waste because it extends shelf life and not kind of uh, say, okay, so uh, consumers don't want plastic, we're removing plastic without having uh, weighed in what's the best solution because in some cases it might be that having things in plastic is the best solution for some specific type of produce but that for other type of produce having them without plastic is a better solution overall if we look at not kind of food waste as a separate issue and plastic as a separate issue but overall across the supply chain, what reduces the environmental impact as a whole, instead of treating each issue as a separate issue. And and also, I mean, it's again, you're exactly right in the sense that look at it as an environmental argument rather than a siloed argument. It's the same point as why do we get you know, fruits from Chile or, you know, in the southern hemisphere in, in winter and things like that. So I think it's looking at it from an overall perspective and fighting that argument or, uh, rather than the yeah, individual knee-jerk reactions, yeah. what the consumer wants, what seems to sell more in the at the end of the day. Yeah, I think. yeah because ultimately the, the consumers are putting their trust and their faith in the supermarkets that they are going to do right by them. Correct. And by doing right by them, that extends to doing right by the environment. And, and so, yeah, it's about appreciating that there are embedded resources and embedded energy in every single thing yes. that's produced. So yeah, it's factoring that into the decision-making process of, you know, how something's going to be packaged, how it's going to be distributed, transported, all the rest of it. So, yeah. But I think it's just that we build these almost oligopolies or monopolies in certain industries yeah. that they're so big that the focus seems to be on short-term market share and, mm. and your bottom line rather than long-term arguments. And this goes back to fine, you know, let's say supermarket A does it, I'll lose my market share because somebody else, yeah. the other people won't do it. And therefore, the, the, the focus almost seems to be on, on short-term gains rather than long-term gains. And I think that's where the environment argument loses yeah. itself amongst all the other things that happens uh, on a day-to-day basis. And that's where policymakers need to step in and, yeah. and start writing policy. And standardize certain things and say, this is what you should do. Let's let's look at simple example being plastic, you know, 5P, 5P yes. bag. It was an industry-wide change that happened at the same time. And, and yes, people still buy those bags, but there's the, the you know consumption of plastic went down drastically, almost sixty percent or so on. And I think you're right. In a way, that's where policymakers need to come and really say, right, okay, all these other things shall we look at it end to end rather than just siloed pieces of. Uh, yeah. yeah, because voluntary, you know, the the government is very hands off and, and likes its voluntary targets and stuff. But but then when when it it is likely to hurt the bottom line, as you say, then. They're going to be reluctant. Any any one supermarket is going to be reluctant to put their head above the parapet and give that a go and take that risk because they lose that market share. But sure. policymakers, that's when they need to take responsibility and say, right, we're going to make this whole you know whole industry kind of 
legislation that means all of you have to do it so everybody so then everybody can commit to it yeah so I, I think there's a real need for that in terms of food waste and and plastic packaging and the rest because voluntary they're not going to do it willingly voluntarily and, exactly yeah Exactly. And I think people from all sectors need to come together and work on it right from the grower yeah. to, 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 to people like us living mm. in homes because 50% happens uh, or waste happens uh, in our homes. And that again goes back to because produce is so easily available, it's quite cheap. Uh, we don't seem to realize the true value of yeah. that of that produce. We just look at a banana or an apple as an apple. We don't really think about the resources that go behind growing those things. Yeah. And this again comes back to education and the the consumer actually be able to kind of see what happens behind the scenes mm. at, at, on a farm. And we've lost that connection somewhere. And so, was bringing policymakers. You're right bring that together as, as, a, as a circle and say, this is what happens, let's work together for solutions, find solutions. Yeah. And so, uh, just to wrap up, what next for Oddbox? What's, uh, because you've, you've just had your campaign, which was massively successful, so you've got a huge amount of investment from a significant number of people. So what's the plan? Yeah, so, so, so basically right now we're only uh, mainly in South London. We've just started to expand to West London. Uh, we've got lots of people who signed up to our waiting list and are waiting for us to kind of expand to the rest of London. So that's the plan. So um, basically uh, we are planning to go to uh, East London uh, after the summer, so in September, October, and then extend from there to North London and uh, eventually cover the whole of the M25. Uh, in the next uh, uh, 12 to 18 months. And beyond that, we uh, we plan to kind of replicate what we are doing in London to uh, tier two cities where we know that there will be demand for wonky fruit and veg as well. Great. Okay. And where can people find out about you and, and uh, get their name on that waiting list? So they can just sign up for, so on our website, so oddbox.co.uk. Um, they can check if we're available in their area. And if not, they can just join the waiting list and be on our mailing list so that they receive news and updates about Oddbox and we'll inform people when we expand to their area. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Food is Wasted podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Emily and Deepak and hearing about the great work that they're doing at Oddbox. Once again, you can find out more about Oddbox as well as order a fruit and veg box or add your name to the waiting list if outside of London by going to oddbox.co.uk. Please don't forget to visit the Food is Wasted website where you can learn about the issue of food waste in more depth and the great work of people and organizations to reduce it. And please subscribe via iTunes or wherever you download your podcast and rate and review the podcast to help ensure more people hear the stories and experiences of the people I interview. Thank you once again for listening and take care.